ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome. This is Jay Richards. I'm a senior fellow here at the Discovery Institute, and I'm joined for a second interview with Bijan Namadi, who is at the University of Alabama Huntsville, He's done particle physics and astronomy, He's worked on telescopes, he's been at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And in the, the previous interview, we were talking about the new James Webb Space Telescope, which is really a space observatory that is in the process of being moved into its place and unfurled. And we hope will come online and tell us a lot of cool stuff about the universe. Bijan, thanks for joining me again. Oh, it's great to be with you, Jay. Okay, so for people that missed the previous episode, give us 30 seconds on the James Webb Telescope, what it is, what's it supposed to do. James Webb is a space-borne observatory consisting of a six and a half meter primary mirror that is cooled, the whole telescope is cooled to a point that it can do infrared astronomy and probe early formation of galaxies and stars and explore planet formation and planet atmospheres as a general purpose instrument. It can go into a region of the wavelength spectrum that is just not accessible to anything on the ground or any of the other telescopes that are in space. So it's going to, unlike the Hubble telescope, I mean, people, th this is the one space telescope that most lay people know about is Hubble. And I assume it's because of all the spectacular images we got of nebulae and distant galaxies and things like that. This is in the infrared. So it's not, not in the visible part of the spectrum. And so it's not up there to give us pretty pictures. It's up there to tell us things that we don't yet know or don't fully understand about the universe, right? Yeah. In a sense, it will give us pretty pictures because the sensors on, mm -hmm. the, on the instrument have essentially the ability to see that. And in fact, with fake color, it's actually going yeah. to be glorious. But in fact, you're right. Almost everything that we'll see are objects that to our eye would be essentially invisible. It just starts at about where we stop <laughs> in mm, our right. ability to, to see things. But yeah, the infrared is just very interesting. That near or mid infrared is very interesting to astronomers because of absorption spectra of very important molecules from the standpoint of what are the constituents in the atmospheres of mm -hmm. extrasolar planets, you know, many, many uh, applications. It's just where you want to be in, uh, in those wavelengths. So That's great. And so uh, while we're talking, it's not even, in fact, quite arrived in its location, let alone actually giving us data. But as you explained in the previous episode, it's both a telescope and then there are these four major instruments so that the, depending upon where the internal mirror points, it can do several different cool things. But just to remind listeners, or at least and maybe the, uh, there's a, maybe a few ID the future listeners that don't know this stuff, but because of the finite speed of light, the farther away a telescope is seeing really the farther back in time it's seeing. So the farther out, you're basically sampling different periods in the history of the universe, right? That's right. It's yeah. actually, you know, in a way, well, well, let's look at like the Andromeda galaxy. That's our nearest large spiral galaxy, two and a half million light years away. If a star was going to go supernova today on Andromeda, mm -hmm. from a light standpoint, we could even see it with our unaided eyes. Hmm. But we're not going to know about that event 
for another two and a half million years. Darn, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so all we know is about the past, but in a way that is very reminiscent of the major themes of your book, Jay, you, that mm-hmm. you wrote with Guillermo Gonzalez, The yeah, Privileged Planet, Planet, that the universe seems to be designed for discovery, and in, this is an attribute of it. Mm-hmm. If light speed was infinite, then I would not have access to the past. It's, no. it's gone. But because of the finite speed of light, I actually have access to the past. I look back, yes. and the more infrared I go, the farther back I'm seeing in time. Yeah. Why more infrared? Because of the expansion of the universe, the red shifting as things are – everything is receding from us, and things mm-hmm. that are farther are receding even faster. And that causes them to look redder or you know, go into a longer wavelength yeah. such that a sun-like star – you know, that is very far, it's going to be pretty red in the range mm-hmm. that you would need a James Webb to, to detect. Yeah, it's way out in the infrared. Yeah. yeah, it's really something. And I so I assume that this is going to tell us stuff about the early history of the universe. Is it also going to help with the question about extrasolar planets and potentially Earth-like planets? Yes, I would say it is not a super tailor-made telescope for extrasolar planets. i but it certainly will do some spectacular things in that area. Mm-hmm. Basically, there is a technique of the four or five very major techniques to see extrasolar planets. One of them is called the transit technique, where you essentially look for a planet by the drop in the intensity of the starlight as you look at the star. You don't see yeah. the planet, but the planet gets in front of the star and the light from the star goes down by a factor of you know maybe 10 to the minus four, one and one percent of a one percent. Wow. You know, drop in the light of the star. So you have to be able to measure the light from the star with pretty good precision. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest obstacles to that precision, the fundamental one, is what is called photon noise. And that has to do with how much light are you getting? And with the James Webb, the light collecting power is so large that the photon statistics work out very well. Oh, wow. The other thing is that there is a technique with extrasolar planets that's pretty cool. It's essentially called transit spectroscopy, where you take a spectrum of the star. Then when the planet is there in front of it, when you see the drop in light, you then take the second spectrum of the star. You subtract the two spectra from each other. And whatever you get is the part that is the spectrum from the planet's atmosphere. So Mm -hmm. by looking for the signatures for methane or oxygen or carbon dioxide or water, you can take a pretty good shot. And what is going on on the planet's atmosphere? At least what are the constituents? Some of the challenges are that whenever you subtract two physical quantities, the error goes up because you're accumulating errors from both things that that contributed to that subtraction. And so there, to reduce those errors, you need a big telescope. And James Webb being so sensitive into the infrared and being a big telescope means that transit spectroscopy is going to take a major, major leap. I see. Well, and so is that, you know, I've, I've seen some headlines have talked about this telescope as the alien hunter. Is this, is this where the, the hope is, is in, in this particular type of detection, maybe we'll find atmospheres that, you know, at least are correlated to life or something like that. I mean, what are people thinking? Yeah, I think that, you know, what it is that is that in terms of where in the spectrum it's looking and its sensitivity, it is a very fantastic instrument. But the challenge comes in that planets that are solar system-like, and particularly Earth-like, 
are awfully close to their stars from an astronomical mm -hmm. point of view. And for those, you need a special instrument called a coronagraph. And a coronagraph was designed, was first invented by Bernard Leo in the 1930s, a French astronomer who wanted to essentially make artificial eclipses, something that yeah. you and Guillermo wrote quite a bit about. Yes. And so those perfect eclipses that you wrote about, now, if you wanted to create them in an instrument, you have to use a coronagraph, and it's a very special optical device. Now, James Webb has a coronagraph, and oh, mm. why do we need a coronagraph? Because yeah. not so much because of the corona of these extrasolar, I mean, these uh, remote stars. stars. Yeah, it's that because of the diffraction of star uh, of any light, because of the diffraction effect, the light from that star ideally should have been a disk that should be the right angular size for that star that far away. Yep. But instead, it's a massive blob of light <laughs> because of the diffraction of light. Mm -hmm. And it just spills right over and, and deluges the, uh, the planet. So the okay. planet, you know, you want a signal to noise ratio. You know, you want basically the planet signal to be maybe five to 10 times at least more mm -hmm. than the noise. Instead, it is one millionth of the noise. <laughs> Of the planet. <laughs> it's almost all noise. <laughs> yeah, it's just a, it is a it is worse than a needle in a haystack. A needle in a haystack would be very easy compared to that. And so for that, there's a new breed of instruments called coronagraphs. These are for exoplanet imaging. And in fact, Guillermo Gonzalez, who is my colleague, and I mm -hmm. are working on those instruments for the next space telescope, okay. which is called the Roman Space Telescope. It has one instrument that's a coronagraph. So James Webb will do very good pathfinding of large deployable telescopes that we will need for the future Earth-like planet detections. Yes. And it will do spectroscopy that will be very interesting for a whole host of planets. But when you put the two together, Earth-like planets, spectroscopy, you know, far enough away that we would be able to expect many, mm -hmm. then no, James Webb is not tailor-made for that. And no. uh, so we'll have so, to So yeah, there's trade-offs. We can't optimize for everything, alas. No, so that's right. so we're going to need more than one. Well, for folks that listen to this podcast, obviously, we're interested in one of the questions is, okay, how common are Earth-like planets? And that's going to be a cool question that hopefully we'll get to live to have some more detailed sense of. But this will tell us something about the early history of the universe. I mean, do you think that's where we're likely to get really interesting data to attach to our theorizing about these things. Yes. How did the earliest, the first stars and galaxies form? Mm -hmm. What were the conditions? And then how in general are stars forming? And that we can do, we can, we can go to the very early universe and see something about the conditions of the early universe and essentially what, what were the dynamics that were involved down to the universe is 13.7 billion years old. You know, we're mm -hmm. talking about going like 13 and a half billion years back, almost to the very wow. early formations of stars. And we can answer a bunch of questions there. And that's going to be very important from a design point of view. What were the early conditions? Well, how fine-tuned are we for those you know, conditions? Yeah. And then we can talk about planet formation theories and, and solar system formation theories. And, you know, when Isaac Newton came up with what we call classical physics, Immanuel Kant took from that, he kind of devised a planet formation hypothesis in which yeah. basically dust and gas accrete and, you know, make disks and essentially form together from gravitational attraction. That theory is essentially today's theory, except, mm -hmm. of course, with a lot more theoretical backing. 
However, I would say that it is still a very challenging question. Hmm. How did the protoplanetary disks, especially the protoplanets, yes. get formed? And what are the dynamics there? And any help from observation right now would be very, very helpful. And that is an area where James Webb is going to do, I think, do a marvelous job. I mean, it's amazing because, of course, this hypothesis, it just sort of has this intuitive plausibility if you get some of the physics, you know, and I think this is where Kant was. He wasn't a physicist. He was a philosopher that was into Newton, right? But, but to think that here we are hundreds of years later, and we're still looking for kind of the empirical details about this, no matter how plausible it is in natural science, you really want to have some, <laughs> you like to observe something to confirm that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it comes down to little questions like particles of dust in a protoplanetary dust, they collide together. Mm -hmm. uh, will they stick? How sticky are they? Yeah. And is it really realistic to think that they have the stickiness that overcomes the, the energies involved in the collision? And what is that really working out? And you can make models and you can tune the models, but, but the parameters of your models need to be informed by observation. Mm. Otherwise, you know, you don't really know. And so No, that's right. I can remember all the speculative hypotheses about what the structure of solar systems is supposed to be, right? And it was just, <laughs> everybody seemed pretty confident until we could actually detect some extrasolar systems. And it turns out they take all sorts of different configurations. Absolutely. You know, 20, uh, now it's 22. So 27 years ago, we detected yeah. the first extrasolar planet. And at that early stage, the detection of the first extrasolar planet might have looked like, okay, well, then this stuff is easy. You know, we've detected them. Now we're going to detect many, many more. And we're going to find that formation of Earth-like planets is probably something common in the galaxy and in the universe. And fast forward 27 years, yes, we have detected thousands mm -hmm. of planets. But when you look at the details of the planets, the stars and the planetary systems and how much we're learning about these systems, effects that we were not really aware of 27 years ago. The picture is, yes, there's a lot of planets. There are billions of planets probably right here in the Milky Way, much less the hundreds of billions of other large spiral galaxies. But if you even take a very modest set of requirements, you'd have to look at tens of thousands of Milky Ways before you should mm. expect a single Earth. And that's just expecting somewhere. I mean, just think of it as if we were to send an interstellar spacecraft, how far do we have to go before we find a place we can ha inhabit? Forget yeah. about the origin of life question. Just sure. I'll put life there. How far do I have to go? And you say, well, go enough distance that you can sample 10,000 Milky Ways. Yeah, you know that's uh, time consuming. <laughs> it's a little time consuming. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Look how long it took years. us just to build the Tarn telescope. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, given that the nearest such galaxy is two and a half million light years, you yes. know, uh, it's out of our physical reach for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary. Well, it's an exciting time, though. I mean, it's a, quite a drama getting this telescope into space, but uh, most of the big humps have been crossed over. It, and so we can hope here in the next few months to start getting some very interesting data that, that will help us to answer some of these questions. Yeah, it will be an exciting summer. Uh, we want to hear that the cooling went successfully and the alignments mm -hmm. went successfully. And then the first test image is going to be taken. And then we're going to want to see the instruments coming online. And so summer is going to be pretty exciting. Bijan Amadi, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, it's a pleasure, Jay. Thank you. 
Well, we've been talking about this landmark web observatory that is in the process of unfolding and uh, we hope going online in space. I've been joined by Bijan Namadi. Bijan is a research scientist at the University of Alabama, Huntsville. And the one thing I did not mention about him is that he is a friend for a long time. It also appears in the Privileged Planet documentary. So any of you that have seen that actually know what he looks like. It's been great to be with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Hope to talk to you soon. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by Center for Science and Culture.